5.30 breakout um, of Why Gender Matters by Linda Seiler. She was a former director of Purdue Chi Alpha, and now she works at the National Ministry Center, which is really awesome. Um, and she should be talking about Why Gender Matters. Give it up for her. Thank you. It's good to be with you guys here today in the uh, frozen tundra of Atlanta. What's up with that? <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's pray because we need the Lord on this topic, right? So, Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today as the family of God and learning and growing um, about things, all sorts of things, about walking with you. And I pray specifically over this session, Lord, you would help us to tune into your heart. God, there's just so much stuff going on in our culture today and so many things, difficult conundrums that we don't know how to answer. And we need wisdom that comes from above. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, you would release your wisdom. I pray you would release your revelation. I pray I would just be a vessel and that as I open my mouth, you would speak through me regardless of what I have planned in my notes. I just pray that you would have your way over this next hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, so yeah, I, I want to share why I'm passionate about this topic. And it's because from my earliest memory, I felt like a little boy trapped in a girl body. So you can see it in, uh, I think it's the second slide. Um, and I didn't know back then, I'm, I'm 48, so that means I was born in 1973. I just spared you from doing any math today. Right? You're on break. Um, so nobody was talking about LGBT. Nobody knew what transgender was. I didn't know what transgender was. I had no idea that those were the feelings I was experiencing. I just thought I was supposed to be a boy, and I literally, as a little kid, I remember lying in bed at night and praying that God would turn me into a boy. One, one day before school, I, I laid there for like 10, 15 minutes. I said, Lord, could you, before I get out of this bed and I go to school, and I was like five, five years old, five, six years old, I said, before I get out of bed and go to school, could you just make me into a boy? And so I gave him a good 10 to 15 minutes. And uh, needless to say, I got out of bed as a disappointed little girl. And um, I remember I didn't tell my parents or anybody that I felt like I was a boy in a girl body. Like we didn't have words and terminology and, and stories back then like we do now. And so I kind of felt like this is just how I feel, but the rest of the world doesn't necessarily need to know it. Although you could tell by looking at me, I was very boyish as a kid. But you can see in the next picture, my parents just thought I was this tomboy kind of kid. Because there's a lot of girls that are tomboys and like to climb trees instead of playing with Barbie dolls. And they just thought it was a phase that I would grow out of. And so it's, it's not something I ever told them. It was just kind of my little secret and things that I really wished. Now, I, I wasn't a Christian growing up, but I heard about things called, like, reincarnation. And so I thought, oh, if I'm ever reincarnated, my wish was, let me be reincarnated as a boy and come back in the next life as a boy. I was absolutely fixated on being a boy. You can see in the next picture, I was so tomboyish. I was mistaken for a boy at school whenever we go out to eat and so forth. And uh, one time when I was in fourth grade, a friend pushed me into the boys' bathroom, and I saw this wall of urinals, and I was like, what, what is that? <laughs> I had no idea there was a way the other half lived. <laughs> and, and that became, a, this is kind of you know, TMI, but a urinal became like the, the symbol of that forbidden world that I couldn't get into. 
And from that point forward, I began sneaking into boys' bathrooms, and as I got older, into men's restrooms, and pretending to use a urinal, because that was like the ultimate high in life. Um, and it turned into a sexual fetish that for decades I could not get free from. And it wasn't something I felt like I could tell anybody, because it wasn't necessarily culturally acceptable. Now around the same time when I was about nine years old, I heard about these things that we used to call sex change operations. And I was like, are you serious? Like I could literally go to a hospital one day as Linda and come out the next day as David? Sign me up. <laughs> so I was like, as soon, and I had a plan as a, as a fourth grader, as soon as I am old enough and I have enough money, I will get a sex change, I will change my name to David, which is what my parents would have called me were I a boy. I don't know if I knew that or that was just something I intuitively picked up, I have no idea. Um, but that was my plan and I was working it. So in the next picture, I get into junior high and you can see I'm still just kind of androgynous and boyish and around sixth grade, I discovered to my horror that I was attracted to women. I didn't choose that, I didn't want that. Nobody who finds that they're same-sex attracted in junior high chooses that. Maybe in college you start experimenting sexually and, you know, the whole I kissed a girl and I think I liked it kind of phenomenon kind of thing. Maybe you start experimenting and you open up doors to the demonic and things like that. You can get roped into kind of perversions and things like that. But, like, nobody who's growing up who says, you know, I'm attracted to the same sex ever chooses that. I, I go to universities and talk with LGBT uh, groups, and, and I'll ask them after I speak, I say, tell me, don't filter your answer, tell me the truth. What was your first reaction? How old did you, were you when you figured out you had same-sex attraction? Then they usually say around junior high. And then I say, don't filter your answer, what was your first reaction? And 100% of the time, there's not one exception, 100% of the time they all said, I was horrified. And even those that were not religious, said, I actually prayed and asked God to take, if there is a God, take these things away. Nearly every person had. Why? Because when you're in junior high, nobody wants to stick out and not be quote-unquote normal. Nobody chooses. Not, not a single person I met when I talked to, I said, you know, what was your reaction? Not a single one said, Yay! I was hoping I'd be gay. You know, that, no, not a single one reacted that way. Because there's something into it, and I believe spiritually speaking, there's a reason why the answer has been the same. And it's not because of cultural pressure. In my day, you could have argued, it was because of cultural pressure. Because it was, you would be ostracized if anybody found out you had those attractions. But today, our culture is more affirming than ever. <laughs> there are equal rights, gay marriage is legal, and so forth. People are so affirming. And yet that's still the intuitive response among those who first figure out they're same-sex attracted. And I believe, spiritually speaking, it's because in Romans it talks about how the law of God is written on our hearts. We intuitively know something about this is off. Something about this is not God's design. But I didn't choose it, and I don't want it, but I don't know how to change it. I totally understand how that feels. That was my personal experience. Now, as I was in junior high, and I'm looking at the boys around me whose voices are changing, and they're becoming everything I desperately long to be, I became suicidally depressed. I wanted to kill myself. I hated living in this body that God had given me. I, it just felt like a death sentence to me, and I was intensely jealous of the boys around me. And so in my mind, when I discovered I was same-sex attracted, I was like, what in the world is going on? I didn't even know what it was at first. And then when I figured it out, I was like, oh, no. And then as I kind of processed, I thought, well, wait a minute. If I really am a man trapped inside of a female body, then I should be attracted to women because that just makes me a straight man. 
So I know, convoluted like 12 year old thinking, but that's how I made sense of my world. And so I thought, well, now I just need to hold out until I get the sex change operation, and then my whole world will make sense. So that was my plan and I was sticking to it. As I got into late junior high in the next picture, I started thinking through the ramifications of that decision in a way you don't think through it when you're nine years old. And I was like, oh no, how am I gonna tell my family? Like you don't just leave the house one day as Linda and come back later as David and they don't know. At some point they're gonna know. It's okay to laugh, you guys are a little stiff. So, no, okay? I know this is an intense topic, but it's like, it's okay, to, there are some funny things and it is okay to laugh. So I, I was like, man, I can't just leave the house and come back as David and, you know, at some point they're gonna know. But I didn't know how to tell them. And uh, I figured, you know, I, I probably have two options. I can, I can, I, I don't know if my, my parents are gonna accept me or reject me or, you know, whatever. I'm thinking through all of this, like what would my parents think? What would my sister think? What would my grandparents think? What would the neighbors think when they find out? You have to understand in the 1980s, no one was talking about this. And you were absolutely ostracized if you came out this way. And so I figured I had two options. I could either run away, have the sex change, never see my family again, but live happily ever after as David. Or I could not have the operation, keep my family, but know that it would consign me to a life of suicidal despair and loneliness. And I remember the day I was walking down the hallway in junior high and I consciously chose option B. And I thought, you know what, this is just what I have to do to survive. Now, truthfully, I was too chicken to transition. I was too chicken to come out, but that was funny. I was too chicken to transit, that was funny, right? All right, y'all are real tense. So I was too chicken to transition, so I get into to high school and I decided I, I, better, um, I better grow my hair out and try and do some things that you know nobody will figure out my deep, dark secret. And so um, this next picture is my attempt at trying to grow my hair out a little bit. I had a mullet for a period of time, not the best idea. And um, soccer player, volleyball, basketball, we did win the state championship my senior year in high school. Thank you very much, thank you very much. It's my claim to fame, nobody cares 30 years in the future, but anyway, it's my only claim to fame. So anyway, it was difficult playing these sports side by side by women because my attractions that started with older women that were not sexual, I just wanted an older woman to pay attention to me, to love me, to hug me. And it's because I was lacking that connect with my own mom growing up for, uh, for several reasons, she did not have the ability to connect with my heart. And it left my heart longing for feminine love. I didn't know that as a little kid growing up. I just knew when I went to my friend's house and I was around her mom, I was like, hey, I want her mom to be my mom instead of my mom to be my mom. And I didn't know why I felt that way. And I wanted her mom to pay attention to me and hug me and all of that. It was just a, a natural longing that God gave me to connect with feminine love the way God designs us. Every girl is meant to connect with mommy and want to enter the world of mommy and experiment and try on makeup and you know her high heels and all that stuff as a little four-year-old. Every little kid is designed that way. I didn't do that. I rejected mom, wanted nothing to do with her world, and instead I idolized my father. I was in the bathroom practicing shaving as a four-year-old. I wanted to be just like dad in every single way. And that left my heart with a deficit for feminine love. And so when my sexual drives and desires kicked in, those normal, natural, strong desires got confused with this natural desire for feminine love. And it felt like I was born that way because my attractions were aimed at women instead of aimed at men. So here I am in high school, and I'm, I have no idea if all of this stuff is going on. And I'm thinking, I, I need to try to cure myself. 
And so I thought, maybe I don't like boys because I've never dated a boy, and I've never been you know, sexually experimenting with a boy. So I thought, all right, here's what I'm gonna do. I am gonna invite Brian from my physics class to the turnabout dance where the girls ask the guys. So here I am, uh, borrowed a dress from my sister, and um, standing like a football player next to Brian. <laughs> there were no sparks flying that night, but it was my first of many attempts to try to date guys and cure myself and experiment sexually with them, hoping it would like awaken something in me that's dormant. I just want you to know that doesn't work. Um, but I went to prom, even my junior and senior year wore the same dress, just borrowed one of my sisters, I'm older sister Nancy, three years older than I, and I just borrowed one of her dresses, played the part, did everything I needed to do, but deep down inside, you can see in the next picture, I still felt like a man dressed in drag. Like that is, wearing those dresses felt like a costume, like I was trying to fit in and play a part, but I hated it, and internally I was absolutely miserable. Now my junior year in high school, I heard the gospel and I got saved. You can see in the next picture, I'm standing with some friends from church, I got involved in a youth group, and I thought the night that I got saved, all these things would go away and I would wake up the next morning and no longer be attracted to women and be content in a female body. And when the next day I woke up and I, nothing had changed, I thought, oh no, now I'm really in a catch-22. Because as much as we weren't talking about this in our culture back in 1989, we were certainly not talking about it in the church. And so I thought, I just have to fool all these people. Now I started making friends for the first time. I didn't have friends, nobody wants to be friends with somebody who hates themselves, but when I became a Christian, um, they were like, oh no, we, we love you, they love everybody, and I was like, oh, okay, so I have friends now. And as I started getting close to people, emotionally to other women, I found myself attracted to a lot of the women that were pouring into me and discipling me. I wasn't attracted to every woman, just like when you are um, heterosexual, you're not attracted to every opposite sex person, you have a kind of a type. And I had a certain type that I was attracted to, and there's a reason for that type. I don't have time to go into all those details today, but there's actually a reason, it has to do with the wounds in the heart. So anyway, um, I'm struggling with all of this, and um, I go to college at the University of Illinois, and this is a picture of my senior Bible study at University of Illinois. I am madly attracted to the woman seated above me in the Illinois blue sweatshirt. Her name was Nikki, she was my Bible study leader, and I could not keep my mind straight around her. And finally, my senior year in college, I, I just couldn't take it anymore. I'm living a double life, nobody knows what's going on behind closed doors. And um, I just hit a point at a, a conference similar to this uh, assault conference. It was actually 27 years ago this week that I asked my campus pastor, could we get together? There's something I need to tell you. Because I had been to an elective. It's a good thing that you're at electives and breakouts. I had been to an elective, and at that elective they said, if you are, find yourself in habitual repetitive sin and you can't get free, the answer is James 5.16. Confess your sins one to another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. When you take what's in the dark and you bring it into the light, you break the power of the enemy to energize that sin and that addiction in your life, right? Amen. So I heard that at that elective, and I didn't hear anything else they said at that whole conference. I just knew, unless I take what's in the dark and bring it into the light with a trusted leader, I will never be free. And so I asked my campus pastor, could we get together? There's something I need to tell you. Can I talk to you? And... Um, it took a while because he was busy at the conference. He said, let's meet the day after tomorrow for breakfast in the lobby at the hotel. And um, long story short, in between that time, I nearly took my life. I nearly killed myself because I thought, what, what in the world? I've told, I'm 21 years old and I've never told anybody. And I'm about to go tell my campus pastor this deep, dark secret that nobody, not even my family knows. He's going to expose my sin, kick me out of the group, and just make this a horrific experience. But somehow, by God's grace, I made it through the next day and a half. 
And I'm there at breakfast, and after an hour of painstaking a small talk with my 40-something-year-old married campus pastor as a 21-year-old, uh, he was like, oh, was there you know, any reason in particular you wanted to have breakfast today? And I was like, yeah, I'm having a hard time getting to it. <laughs> when I finally tell him the secret that I had never told any human on planet Earth, he looked at me and he said, Linda, thank you for sharing that with me. I know that took a lot of courage. And I want to let you know that doesn't change our opinion of you. We love you. We see the hand of God on your life. And we want to get you the help that you need. And my brain was like, tilt, 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 doesn't compute, doesn't compute. <laughs> that was not the answer I was expecting. But my spirit was like, this is the Lord. You know? So I walked away from that conversation. I said, Lord, what? What was that? <laughs> and I sensed the Holy Spirit speak to my heart, not in audible words, but just an impression on my heart. Linda, what you just saw was a picture of my heart. I love you. I'm sad that you're hurting, and I want to get you the help that you need. And you have to understand, my view of God, and this is true of most people that experience same-sex attractions or transgender desires, your view of God is skewed. It's whacked up. You think God hates you because you have these desires. Because sometimes the church has misrepresented the heart of God. And you think because of, you're under such condemnation and guilt for the sexual addictions and sin that's going on behind closed doors, you think God is just waiting with raised fist to come down hard on you. That was my view of God. And I still struggle with that to this day. I, I still am growing in the love of God and knowing that he's for me and he's not against me. But that's just kind of the background that I came out of, right? So it's, it's in, it marked kind of in your brain. So long story short, when I told my campus pastor this in 1994, 27 years ago this week, I had no idea 27 years into the future I'd be standing, speaking to college students and sharing my story of transformation. I had no idea. That day in 1994 was the beginning of what was to be an 11-year journey of transformation in my life. Now, I had no idea it would be 11 years, and I probably wouldn't have signed up with the for the trip if I'd known in advance, right? But discipleship is a process. Sanctification is a process, and God is still changing me, still sanctifying me, still helping me grow more and more comfortable in who he's created me to be as a woman. But suffice it to say, over that 11-year journey, and by the way, I want a side note. If you struggle with these desires like I do, or you have a friend who does, I'm not saying it has to take everyone 11 years, okay? I'm a little bit of a slow learner, and we didn't have people coming to conferences like this and sharing tips and training campus pastors and how to deal with issues like this back then. So it took us a long time to even figure out what in the world was going on and how do we respond. But for me, my journey was 11 years. But over that process, God used redemptive relationships in the body of Christ. Uh, people that were spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers and, and men and women who affirmed me as a woman among women and as a woman who is distinct from, yet cherished by men. And it was so healing to my soul. And I also experienced inner healing prayer for wounds in my heart, for things where my mom just couldn't connect with my heart. I experienced sexual abuse as a child, and there were a number of other things, contributing factors, that contributed to the development of these feelings in my, my soul. What we're dealing with is psychosexual development, where your mind, will, and emotions are affected by traumatic experiences in your past. And it doesn't have to be major trauma, it can just be subtle experiences that affect your perception of reality and your perception of yourself and your own gender. And that affected my psychosexual development and created neural pathways in my mind that led me toward attractions to women instead of attractions to men. But over that 11 year period, God began to unravel that. 
and he began to help me through the body of Christ experience developmental growth and psychosexual development to the point where the wounds in my soul where I was lacking feminine love were healed through the body of Christ and through inner healing prayer. And also the, the sexual abuse and the other things I had been exposed to, I had to go through a lot of talk therapy and just processing that trauma. But over time, as the Holy Spirit came in and he healed my heart, I went from being an androgynous woman, you can see in this first picture, just click once, um, went from being this kind of sporty, androgynous woman to where God was changing the inside, but also changing the outside, where I no longer wanted to dress up to try to fool people that I was fitting in, but I actually wanted to step into the world of women. There was a spiritual mom God used in my life to kind of, kind of model to me what womanhood was, and it was like I wanted to begin imitating her, dressing like her. To this day, I still wear the same perfume she wears. I still wear rings on the same kinds of fingers. I still wear the bold red lipstick that she wore that I tried for the first time and felt like a clown for the first time I tried makeup. But I stepped into, I, I passed that developmental milestone in my 30s instead of when I was 13, <laughs> like most people, right? But suffice it to say, my appearance changed so drastically that when I went home to visit my parents a year later after this first picture was taken, they didn't even recognize me. Now, suffice it to say, there were still things going on internally in me in the right-hand picture. It's not like everything just went away all at once. And there are still areas of my heart, like I said, dealing with my view of God. Does he condemn me? Does he hate me? All of that. Even rejection issues with my mom. I'm still, something happened over Christmas. Something she said. It was really painful. And I'm having to bring those things to the Lord. I still see a counselor talk about those things and find healing. But you know what? I stand before you 27 years removed from the first time I confessed these issues with my campus pastor. I am now content in a female body, and I have no desires to be a man whatsoever. And praise God. Praise God. So grateful. He resolved the trauma in my heart, and the desire to be a man was simply a maladaptive coping mechanism to run away from the pain in my heart. And think, if I'm just a man, I won't have to deal with this pain as a woman. And over time, God began to resolve the desires in my heart towards women, and he satisfied that desire with healthy, feminine love in the body of Christ and inner healing prayer. And in my late 30s, I began to develop attractions to men, which was awkward and thrilling all at the same time, going through like this delayed puberty. So I stand before you as somebody who's content in a female body and wholly attracted to men, never dreamed that 27 years into the future, just like Eli was talking about last night, God doesn't just deliver us from our past, he delivers us from a future without him. And had God not intervened in my life, I would not be standing here today. I probably would have taken my life. Had my campus pastor not responded by demonstrating compassion without compromising the word of God, I wouldn't be standing here today. It's only God's grace at work in our lives, speaking into us a future that only he knows for us. So what I want to share with you briefly today is a biblical theology of sexuality, which is kind of a boring title, so why gender matters is a little bit catchy, more catchy. Um, but what I want to answer for you is four questions today as we look at why gender matters in the whole scheme of things. And the first question is this, who is God? Secondly, who are we in light of who God is. Third, what are the implications for sexual behavior? And then fourth, what about sexual orientation and gender identity? What do we do with that as believers in Christ? Okay, so let's look at first one. Who is God? God is a creative being who rules over all creation. We know Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created, and all of us are here as a result. Secondly, God is a relational being. 
because it says, let us make mankind in our likeness. What is the us and the our of veiled reference to? The Trinity, right? That God exists in community already. The Father loves the Son, loves the Spirit, and he's, he exists in this divine community of holy love. Do you understand? God didn't create us because he was lonely and he needed some companionship. He didn't have to create us. He doesn't need us. He created us in his image to have relationship with him, to invite us to join this divine community of holy love that already exists. And that's who we should be as Christ ambassadors, Chi Alpha. We're inviting people to join this divine community of holy love. Um, salvation, therefore, is so much more than just a prayer you pray to get into heaven. I think sometimes we boil it down to, have you prayed a prayer? Have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I hope you have. I hope everybody in this room has surrendered their life to Jesus. And if, if you haven't, that you would do so by the end of this conference. But it's not just about praying a prayer so you can get into heaven when you die. It's about receiving this invitation to join this community, this divine community of holy love, and, and to experience God's love directly with him and to experience God's love through one another in the body of Christ. And when we see God as he really is and we experience his love, we have no problem surrendering our life to him and saying, you alone are worthy. You alone are worthy of my life. Everything you've given to me, I give back to you. And I want to live my life yielded to you in such a way that I persuade everybody else around me to join me in worship around his worthy throne. That's what salvation looks like. Okay, third, God is a paradoxical mystery, meaning two things that seem like they are opposite are true at the same time. So, for example, we know that God is three distinct persons, but one unified God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, but all three are God. But in our thinking, three cannot be one, but that's how God is this paradoxical mystery. There's a reference to this in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, when we read that verse in English, we miss the connotations of the Hebrew language, which is the original language of the Old Testament. If you were to read it in the Hebrew, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Elohim, the Lord is Ichad. Ichad means one in number, but, I mean, sorry, one in essence, but not necessarily one in number. So God is three, but he is one in essence. So this is literally what this verse says. Hero Israel, the Lord our gods, is one. That's what it says in the Hebrew. It's a veiled reference to the Trinity. Another way of saying that is that God exists in unity in diversity. So he's one unified God, three diverse persons. And so if we were to summarize who God is, we could say it this way. God is a relational creator who welcomes us to join his divine community of holy love that exists as unity in diversity. Is everybody following with me so far? Okay. Now, those same three characteristics that are true of God, he's a creator, he's relational, and he's unity in diversity, are also true of us as human beings made in his image. So, for example... When we look at Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? 
It means that there is something about who we are as his creation. When people look at us, they should be able to see something about our creator and to do something about our creator, the one who created us. It's like we are a reflection of God. So, for example, in this picture, I have a little kitten looking into the mirror. The reflection is the kitty's looking at the reflection. The reflection is not the kitten, and the kitten is not the reflection. We are not God, but people could look at us and to do something about who God is, what his character, what his nature is like, simply by looking at those that reflect him. We are a creation that reflects what God is like. So how do we reflect God? Well, first of all, we are procreative, just like our creator. In Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over it. So in the same way that God created the whole universe and he rules over it, we are commanded as his creation that reflects his character and nature that we are to procreate and rule over all the earth. We reflect our creator in that way. Isn't that cool? Nobody but me thinks that's cool. Okay, that's awesome. <laughs> Secondly, we are relational beings. God said it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. And so he created a, a helpmeet, a, a companion suitable to him. And so we have this concept that God wants to be in relationship with us, and he created us to be in relationship with one another as a relational community. And in the same way that God creates us and welcomes us into his family, we are to procreate husband and wife and welcome children into a new family divine community of holy love. And then thirdly, we represent the paradoxical mystery of unity in diversity, where in Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make mankind in our image male and female. He made them. Now here's the interesting thing. In this room, we have unity in diversity because we are all unified in our humanity, but we are diverse because we have male human beings and we have female human beings. Unity and diversity exists in this room. What's also neat is when you look at Genesis 2, verse 24, where it talks about, for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and this is marriage, the first instance of marriage in Scripture, and it says they become ichad. They become the same thing as God, one in essence, even though they are diverse in number. Unity in diversity. There is something about the mystery of marital union between male and female. And it can only happen with male and male and female. I mean, sorry, male and female. Not with male and male or female and female. Unity in diversity. Okay. Now let's go on from there. Everything that's true of us as humanity is also true and pointing towards the ultimate marriage. So Adam and Eve, or man and woman, husband and wife, are really just representative, a shadow foreshadowing a greater marriage that is yet to come and be culminated at the end of time that's talked about in the book of Revelation. Does anybody know what that marriage is? Right? It's the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. So if you look at this, the same three qualities are true in the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. So in the same way that husband and wife, man and woman, we're procreative beings, we're relational, we have this unity and diversity, the same is true in our relationship with Jesus. First of all, as far as procreation, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born 
again. You're a new creation in Christ when you get saved, right? And then Jesus commands all of us to go and make disciples of all nations, reproducing our spiritual DNA in the next generation and teaching them to obey everything he's commanded us in the same way that your parents taught you. We as spiritual parents are supposed to teach the next generation, replicating our DNA until we fill the earth and subdue the earth with disciple makers of Jesus. That's the ultimate goal of the gospel. Secondly, it's relational. Spiritual fruit comes from relational intimacy with Jesus. So in 1 Corinthians 6, it talks about, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body, for the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. There's a mystery. When you come to know Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. And you may not have felt him come in, but he lives inside of you. And you start to hear his voice and be led by the Spirit. You start to experience conviction about certain things. You start to experience a longing for the things of the kingdom instead of the kingdom, the, the things of the world. The Spirit of God lives inside of you. You are one with the Lord. This is also mentioned in Ephesians 5. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother, united to his wife. The two become one. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and his bride, the church. Earthly marriage is just a shadow, according to scripture, of a greater reality, the joining of Christ and his bride, the church. And then thirdly, the paradoxical mystery of unity and diversity happens in our relationship with Jesus because we are unified with him 100% in our humanity because Jesus is 100% human. But Jesus is also 100% God and we are not. And so there's diversity there. Unity in diversity. I just think that's like way cool. This is one of the reasons why Jesus never married. He was not on earth to look for an earthly bride. He had his, his sights had higher, set higher. He was looking for a heavenly bride. And when you think about the whole plan of God, you look at the Bible, and in the very beginning, it starts out with a marriage, Adam and Eve. And then everything about Adam and Eve leaving father and mother being united and becoming one, that phrase is meant to reflect earthly marriage, but it's pointing to the ultimate marriage that is yet to come. So you have an earthly marriage in, in Genesis, and in the Old Testament, the people of God are compared to being a prostitute or an adulterer. When they weigh stray from God, God describes them as like, you're being unfaithful like in a marriage, right? God is all about this kind of relationship. I want to have a, a marriage with you, and it all culminates in Revelation the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. So if we were to summarize and say, this is what God wants, we could say, God wants to marry us. According to Hosea 2.19, I will betroth you to me forever. That's the kind of relationship God wants to have with us in the spirit realm. Now, what I did not say today is God wants to have sex with you. You did not hear me say that. And if you ever come on and tell anybody else, you heard Linda Seidler say that, I will deny I ever came to, to Atlanta and spoke. Right? That's not what I said. God is spirit, so he is beyond anything we understand in this natural realm right now. Now, he is the source of all things male. He is the source of all things female. But he is spirit, and so he's not constrained by the, the natural constraints we have of our humanity here. And so the concept of our sexuality in this earthly realm, God uses to show us what kind of relationship he wants with us. And so he uses things like we understand God to be our father, and Jesus is the son. We all know what a father-son relationship looks like, right? 
And so we understand masculine things where God reveals himself to us, but he also uses feminine in imagery to reveal his heart to us. And sometimes we miss it because when we read the Bible, we call God Father, rightfully so, because he's revealed himself as Father. We will never call God our Holy Mother. That's just not the way we, I know Catholics have a different view on that with Mary and all that, but I'm talking about God the Father. We're never going to say Father is, is Mother. We always refer to him as Father because he's revealed himself that way. There's actually a theological reason for that. I don't have time to get into that today. So he's revealed himself as Father, so we, we relate to him as Father. We understand that. But he uses feminine imagery as well to describe what he's like. And sometimes we miss that. So, for example, in Isaiah 66, 13, God talks about himself as a mother. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. It's a very nurturing kind of imagery, right? Or in um, Matthew 23, Jesus says, stands over Jerusalem, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you wouldn't have it. So Jesus is using feminine imagery for his heart to say, this is how I want to love you, how I want to comfort you, how I want to nurture you. Even the Holy Spirit is known as the comforter, as the nurturer, which are typically feminine characteristics, and yet God uses those characteristics to reveal what his love is like. And that's been very healing to me as one who lacked maternal love in an earthly way to be able to see that kind of love coming from my creator, a nurturing love. And even the concept of being born again, nobody can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Where do babies come from? They're born out of a womb, right? And so the idea that in, in, in a spiritually speaking, we come out of the womb of God. Again, not to say that God is male or female. He's beyond our constructs of gender. But he uses our understanding of sex and gender to reveal what his love is like. So, next question is, what are the implications then for sexual behavior for us as Christians? First of all, we have to understand God did not create sexuality with morality or rules in mind to follow. He created sexuality to image the relational mystery of the Trinity with the ultimate goal that redeemed humans would be vessels of God's divine presence who invite others to join the divine community of holy love. In other words, our sexuality is so much greater than rules. It's about relationship. But when you go to a typical, how many of you guys were in like a, a high school youth group or something like that when you were younger? Okay, a lot of you guys. All right, so you'll be able to answer this question. Your high school youth pastor got up and talked about dating and sex and said, there's one thing you can't do before you get married. What's the one thing you can't do before you marry as a Christian? Don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex. So you get pounded up, okay, don't have sex, don't have sex. It's the rule that we follow. But then every single teenager I know, as soon as they hear that, they have a question for their youth pastor. A question. Their question is, how far is too far. Like, what, where's the line where you don't actually have sex, but kind of, like, what can I do and still have fun, but not have sex? Every teenager wants to know the answer to that question. That is all on the basis of rules. God didn't create sexuality for rules to follow. And so you can do this, you can't do that. But a lot of Christians approach it that way. It has nothing to do with rules. It has everything to do with relationship. For me, as a 48-year-old single woman who is attracted to men and who is in the game and would appreciate your help if you know a single man who's in his 40s and 50s and really loves Jesus. I really would. 
I miss my prime dating years for, for obvious reasons. So, as a woman who's attracted to men and wants to marry, but you know what? I'm not like the other 42-year-old singles around me who are sleeping around. And people will ask me, well, how come you're waiting until you get, that's, that's kind of crude. Why are you waiting until you're married? Like, I'm not even gonna kiss the man until we're standing on that altar. I am that, because I know my flesh and where I've been, like, if you even awaken that stuff in me, we're gone. So, like, we're gonna wait. <laughs> I have to have restraints because I'm weak, <laughs> right? But, and people hear that, my mom's like, that's not natural. <laughs> and I'm like, well, it's just, it's, it's my standard, you know, it's, it's my conviction. But why, why am I waiting until my wedding day? Well, Jesus has waited 2,000 years for his bride. Can't I wait a few years and months for mine? Right? When you go beyond rules and you get into relationship and you see how our sexuality is a sacred icon of the greatest relationship there is, the marriage between Christ and his bride and the church, I want my sexuality to reflect and point the way to my creator and say there is something so much greater than what this world has to offer. And I could forego those natural desires and sins and all, all of that stuff in order to image my creator and be connected to him. Now, first of all, as we look at the implications for sexual behavior, we have to understand this. Any sexual behavior that doesn't image the mystery of the Trinity is what's forbidden in Scripture. Okay, so everything that we already talked about, God being a creator, relational, and unity and diversity, if it violates those three principles, that's why scripture prohibits certain sexual behavior. It's not because God is like, I'm going to set up a bunch of rules just to torture these young hormonal teenagers who can't have sex until they marry. You know, that's not his intent. He sets up sexuality to be a sacred, sacred icon, an image, a symbol. And, and it's, it's all based on relationship. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through these three characteristics in reverse order. A little easier to explain. First of all, let's look at unity and diversity. Any sexual behavior that doesn't image unity in diversity is what the scriptures forbid because it doesn't reflect our creator and the kind of relationship he wants to have with us. So, first of all, divorce is not an, an, an option since the Trinity can never be disunified. I like the way Dennis Hollinger says, just as the oneness of the divine Trinity cannot be broken or pulled apart, so the oneness from the covenant relationship sealed by the sexual union is not to be pulled apart. We know divorce happens because we live in a fallen world and there are you know, ways that God does allow for that, but it's never God's original intent. And it's never your intent. When you stand on the altar, you're not thinking, like, how many years am I gonna stay in this until we divorce? You know, that's not anybody's intention when they stand on the altar, right? Secondly, bestiality, if you don't know what that is, that's sex with animals. Don't do it, the Bible forbids it. Um, it's forbidden, why? Because there's too much diversity. We, with an animal, are, don't have anything in common. And there's no unity there, right? So, in the same way that no suitable helper was found for Adam among the animals, God had to create Eve, another human, we are not meant to bond with animals sexually. And even if we do, you, there's no pre procreation, procreation that can come forth from that union, we can't fulfill the creation mandate to, to procreate, fill the earth, and subdue it. You can't do that with an animal. Secondly, this is why, homo, or thirdly, this is why homosexuality is forbidden. This is the why. Because there's too much of the same essence and no diversity. It's two humans of the same sex, and there's no unity in diversity. And again, they cannot procreate, fill the earth, and subdue it. 
And this is the answer your generation wants to know. Why? If gay marriage is legal, if love is love, why? Why do we have to be the jerks that say homosexual practice is forbidden? This is why, because it doesn't image the kind of relationship God wants to have with us, unity in diversity. And then next, relational, that relational capacity, not just the unity and diversity, what about sexual behavior that doesn't have that relational capacity that God desires? God is a covenant God, and he established covenant with us through the cross, through the blood of Jesus Christ, and he says from this day forward, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I will be your God forever. He is serious about covenant relationship. So there are reasons why anything that's a, that violates the aspect of covenant relationship is forbidden. For example, adultery and fornication, sex before marriage, are forbidden. Why? Because there's no covenant relationship. Saying we are in this forever until death do us part. Rape, likewise, God would never use you and discard you. It doesn't reflect the character and the nature of God. Pornography, you can't have relationship with an image on a screen. It was never God's design for sexuality. Likewise, masturbation, something that is done selfishly and in isolation was not God's original intent for our sexuality. Now I want to pause here and say, I know in a room this size, there are probably people like me, I was addicted to pornography and masturbation. I couldn't get set free from sexual addiction decades and decades and decades, and I kept it secret for so long. If you want to get free, the answer is to take what's in the dark and bring it into the light with a trusted leader. There is no condemnation here. If you are struggling with those kinds of things, campus pastors, staff people, we would all love to walk alongside you in that and help you. There's a reason why we turn to addictive behavior, and it's usually because there's pain in our heart and we don't want to face the pain. And it's a lot easier to just, I'm going to go over here and forget about that pain for a while. Whether it's sexual addictions or eating, you know, binge eating or whatever it might be. We all struggle with those things in certain ways. And we're here to help you on that. There's no condemnation for those. Now, thirdly, the procreative capacity. Obviously, with homosexuality and bestiality, there's zero procreative capacity. And so you can't fulfill the creation mandate to procreate and fill the earth. Pedophilia, having sex with a child that's not even, not even of age, not God's design for sexuality. There's no procreative capacity there. And there's no covenant relationship where a, a, a minor could assent to a, a covenant relationship. Now, what we're not talking about here is fertility disorders. We know because we live in a fallen world, there are men and women who marry, and they try to have children, and for whatever reason, there's an infertility condition, and they can't have children. And they go to the doctor, and they say, hey, can we run some tests? Could we try in vitro fertilization? Are, are, are there things that we can do to try to conceive? And sometimes there are solutions for that because God designed male and female to have procreative capacity. But you will never find two gay men going to a doctor and say, Doc, could you help us? We just cannot figure out why in the world we cannot conceive a child. <laughs> or two women, likewise, right? That, because we know there is zero capacity for procreation in that kind of a relationship. And likewise, that refers to people who are, maybe they get married when they're 65 and they're past childbearing years, but we know that a woman who hasn't gone through menopause has procreative capacity. Okay, lastly, what are the implications then for sexual orientation and gender identity? How do we handle that in our culture today? First of all, we have to realize again that our gender is sacred, our, our sexuality is a sacred symbol 
of the gospel. And the, this is one of the reasons why the enemy is out to destroy sexuality as a whole and even the concept of gender. But this is one of the ways that we image God in our sexuality, our biological sex. Do you understand that even if I were have to have gotten uh, what we call the sex change or sex, what do they call it? Confirmation, sur gender confirmation, affirmation surgery now, whatever they call it now. Even if I had done that, all I would have been doing is rearranging the skin on my body to make it look like the opposite sex. But do you know what my chromosomes will be forever and ever henceforth? XY. It doesn't change my chromosomal makeup. Likewise, Bruce Jenner, you know, wanting to be Caitlyn, he had some surgery to rearrange the skin on his body, but forever before God, he will be XY. And so that's one of the reasons why, well, I'm not going to get into that. I don't want to that. Okay. So our chromosomes image that God in that sense, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You and I will be forever in glorified bodies as males and females. That was a horrific thought to me when I hated being trapped in a female body. But it's a, it's a good thing. It's God's design. Now, the world doesn't understand spirit, soul, and body the way we understand it as Christians. So I talked before about psychosexual development and how trauma and things from the past can influence the development of your sexual desires. And that's because we know there's something called a soul, your mind, will, and emotions that affect your physical body and those desires. The world doesn't have an explanation for that because they're not thinking spirit, soul, and body. And so they try to come up with an alternative explanation as to why people experience sexual, same-sex attractions or transgender desires. So they come up with like the, the genderbred man, surely you've seen the genderbred man, or like the unicorn or you know those things, right? And so they say that there are four different things. Your gender identity, how you think of yourself in your mind, is different than your gender expression, you can click two clicks down, your gender expression, how you express yourself to the world as masculine or feminine, is different than your biological sex, whether you're male or female, is different than your orientation, uh, how, whether you're heterosexual, homosexual, or so forth. Do you understand these categories are social constructs we have created within the last hundred years or so to try to explain sexual brokenness? Because the world doesn't have an answer. But these categories don't exist. We made them up. The Bible doesn't talk about sexual orientation, not because God doesn't know that these kinds of things happen. It's because there's not a fixed, immutable orientation where you're born that way can't change. That's what the world wants to tell you. The world wants you to think there's a gay gene. Did you know there's not a gay gene? Did you know there's nothing biologically that makes you gay? There's not a hormone, there's not a brain structure, there's not a gene that makes you gay. The world makes you think that, and if you repeat a lie enough times, a lot of people will believe it's true. I can tell you the truth, I did a 379-page, you think your 20-page paper is long, 379-page dissertation on the topic of homosexuality. I read hundreds of studies, all the latest science that's out there. There is not a gene that makes you gay. But our culture has said, oh no, I'm born that way, can't change, because it is what it feels like, that's what it felt like to me. And so they say, born that way, can't change, so now it's not a moral issue, it's not a moral choice, it's a civil rights issue. Because if you're born that way, can't change, then I can't discriminate against you in the same way I can't discriminate because of your skin color or your eye color or your race or whatever it might be. And so it changes it from being a moral issue into a civil rights issue. And now, if I oppose gay marriage, I am now the KKK. 
But I'm not the KKK. I love you. I can love you as a fellow human being made in the image of God, and I can disagree with your moral choices. That doesn't make me the KKK. It just makes me somebody who follows Jesus and his design for biblical sexuality. But we've created these categories, and we have said these are unchangeable. But that's not the truth. The Bible doesn't talk about orientation. You know what it talks about? Disordered desires. We have desires that are not in alignment with God's original creation for our sexuality. They're disordered. And there are reasons why they're disordered. So in God's economy, all four of these things are meant to line up. If I am a female in my body, I am meant to see myself in my mind as a female. If I don't, in my case, the answer is not to rearrange the skin on my body to match my fallen mind. The answer is to renew my mind to match the body that God gave me. Right? Same thing is true for same-sex attractions. The answer is not to say, well, I must be designed to marry somebody of the same sex because I have these attractions in my heart. That's not the answer. The answer is to say, what's going on in the heart that is developing these same-sex attractions, and how can we intervene and help bring healing to those areas where something is out of alignment? In God's economy, all four are supposed to align, and if any one of them or multiple are out of alignment, that's an indicator something is off in the soul. In the mind, in the will, in the emotion. There is something that has affected my own perception of my sexuality and my perception of what men are like. And so the three of the most common ways that I found in my research, I did 30 case studies of men and women that were formerly same-sex attracted and have experienced transformation. And what can we learn from their journeys to train other pastors and missionaries? And three of the most common things we found that influenced people's psychosexual development were number one, they were a gender non-conforming child. I was, I was a little tomboy climbing trees. I wasn't, I didn't want to wear pink and frills. For a little boy, if he's not athletic, but he's sensitive and in touch with his emotions, he'd rather cook than go outside and play football. He's artistic, he's musical, he's, he's, he's got just a, a kind temperament. He goes to school, and what do the little boys call him? You're a sissy, you're a girl, and other derogatory names. He's not. That's the way God made him, and it's not a sin for him to operate in the personality temperament God has given him. But our culture says, you don't measure up. There's something deficient about your masculinity. And that is traumatic to a little boy who wants everybody's approval. And that trauma stays lodged in his soul. And when he grows up and his sexual drives and desires kick into play, he starts to wonder, there must be something deficient about my masculinity. And if there's something deficient in me, maybe if I bond with this guy who's a macho, macho, macho man, it will complete the deficiency in my masculinity. That's the way it worked with me. I felt like there was something deficient about my femininity. And I would see these women that were beautiful. I had a type. The type was women who had a strong, sensitive, strong um, personality te temperament. They were spiritually, they were leaders. They had, you know, certain gifts and talents and even certain appearances. And I was attracted and drawn to the wholeness I saw in other women. And a healing moment came for me when the Lord said, "Did you realize that the things you're attracted to in other women are actually resident within you?" And you don't have to bond with another woman to complete yourself. You can actually embrace who I've called you to be, but you're just insecure and you don't know that. And you need some help stepping into that. That was a huge healing moment for me. So gender nonconformity. A second one, childhood sexual abuse. If a little boy is sexually abused, he will think, why did he pick me and not the job? Why did my body respond that way? Does this mean that I'm gay? And the enemy says, oh yes, this means you're gay. Little girl is abused as a little kid. She could be five years old and say, wow, men are not safe. I will never be vulnerable with a man. 
That doesn't change just because she becomes a teenager and her sexual drives kick in. If men are not safe, there's no reason why she would want to bond sexually with a man. These things can affect our psychosexual development and impact our sexual desires. So by God's design, we are not meant to be gay or trans or anything else, but if something is out of alignment in the soul, then that means we need healing in our soul to transform us. Now, I admit, there are people, Bruce Jenner doesn't want healing in his soul. He wants to go as Caitlin. He has a free will before God and man to do that. I'm not going to force my view on him, but you know what? I would appreciate if he would extend the same courtesy to me. If he walked in the room, I would say, we are so glad you're here with us. We have a seat right down front. Would you like to sit right here next to me? And then afterwards, we're going out to lunch. We would love it if you would join us. What name did I use? I didn't use a name. What pronoun did I use? I didn't call him he, she, Caitlin. I just looked him in the eyes as a fellow human being made in the image of God and loved him and said, please have a seat. We are honored to have you with us. And after a while, we may be in relationship, and he may say, you know, I've noticed you haven't called me Caitlin or she or any of that. And I would say, you know, I, I want you to know, as a friend, you know I love you, and I've been doing my best to honor you and not force my worldview on you. I happen to believe God has a certain design for our sexuality, but I know you don't follow that worldview, and so I don't want to force my conscience on you. But I would ask that you would extend me the same courtesy and not force me to violate my conscience by participating in a known life. I know that's a hard conversation to have. And you know why we don't want to have it? Because we don't want to lose people. Yeah. And for some reason, we think we are greater than Jesus. Because Jesus lost people. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, and they all went away. And Peter said, what are you doing? We have a mega church. And they all left. Oh, are you going to leave me too? Well, no, you have the words of life. He says to the rich young ruler, what must I do? He comes to Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And the rich young ruler went away sad because he had many possessions. And the next verse, and Jesus chased after him and said, wait, 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 let's compromise. Maybe half, not full, not everything. Jesus was not afraid to lose people, but he wasn't a jerk. He loved people right where they were at, but he called them out on their sin. Woman caught in adultery? Go and sin no more. There are times he took a risk and it worked out really well. The woman at the well worked out well. He called her out on her sin. You've had five husbands and the guy you're sleeping with now is not your husband. Called her out. She could have gotten offended and walked away. And instead, he said, I have living water that will fill that thirst. You're thirsty for men, but I got something to fill that addictive thirst. And she took him up on it and she became an evangelist and everybody got saved. Take a risk. Sometimes we're going to lose people for what we believe, but Jesus, we're no greater than Jesus. We, we can't elevate the second command to love our neighbor as ourselves above the first and greatest command to love God with everything we've got. Ephesians 4 says we are to speak the truth in love. And we think, oh, we're just supposed to love. No, you're supposed to speak the truth in love. So closing today, some people in the body of Christ are saying we need to identify as a gay Christian. I have these desires, they're unchangeable, I'm born that way. You, go back, you're distracting me. Go back to the previous slide. <laughs> I'm born that way, I can't change. And so I'm going to identify as a celibate gay Christian. I'm not going to act out on it, but I'm going to identify as a gay Christian. Now I commend those people for saying they're not going to act on those desires. That's great, that's wonderful. Um, but celibacy is actually not the correct term, because 
if I'm celibate, a priest takes a vow to celibacy and says, I'm not going to have earthly marriage because I am going to forego earthly marriage in order to devote myself to the Lord. That's celibacy. Earthly marriage is a good thing. But if I say, I'm going to forego gay sex so that I can be devoted to the Lord, that's not celibacy, that's called discipleship. That's called dying to self. That's saying, I'm going to follow the Lord instead of my fallen desires. And so to identify as a gay Christian or a celibate gay Christian is, is not congruent with the scriptures. Why? Because Ephesians 4 says this, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. Put it off. Don't embrace it and label yourself by those fallen desires. Put it off and say, that's not who I am in Christ. Those fallen desires, the old self, is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. This is where the Bible doesn't talk about orientation. It talks about disorder, deceitful desires. I had deceitful desires that were saying, Linda, it's better to be a man than it is to be a woman. It felt true. I couldn't change that about myself for years because I didn't know change was possible, and I didn't know I had wounds in my soul that needed to be addressed. I had no clue. It felt like I was a man trapped in a female body, literally. But it was lying to me. It was deceiving me. And when God exposed the lie and he replaced the lies with truth, I began to see, oh, this isn't who God created me to be. And i got to tell you the truth, standing on the other side 27 years down the road, oh, this is so much better than getting a sex change and being a man and sleeping with women. This is so much better. So we are to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, be made new in the attitude of our minds, new neural pathways, understanding God's design, surrendering to his design for our sexuality, and saying, Lord, I'm open to any way you want to renew my mind to the truth and heal trauma in my heart. And put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So why does gender matter? God designed our sexuality to image the relational mystery of the Trinity so that everything we do points toward the good news of God's invitation to join his divine community ultimately realized in the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. Gender matters to the gospel. So I want to leave you with one last slide today. If you're looking for help in this area or you have a friend who is Restory Ministries was created specifically to resource and help the Assemblies of God and Chi Alpha regarding same-sex attractions, gender identity. There are lots of resources, videos, books, and things on there. There's a Facebook page you can follow online. We post things several times a week up there of the latest data and science and articles and things that are out there, testimonies of people that have been set free. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people just like me. Don't let the media lie to you and tell you they don't exist. It's because they're suppressing those voices. They're being banned from social media. Amazon will not publish those books and so forth. But um, last thing is I do have a book that's coming out uh, in uh, July in time for what's called Campus Ministers Conference for those that are Chi Alpha staff. And so that will be available, and this is like an entire chapter in that book if you're interested in getting it in writing, because some people have told me I couldn't take notes fast enough. And they're like, okay, we're going to write it all down for you. So it'll be in book format. So if you go to Restory Ministries, you can find my information there, uh, or follow me on Facebook or whatever. So, Father, I thank you for this opportunity today, and I pray that you would bless these men and women and help us, Lord, just to see the beauty and the wonder of our sexuality, that it's not about rules. It's about relationship. It's about knowing you and making you known, even through our sexuality. Thank you so much. I pray for anybody here that's struggling or has a friend that is, 
God, that they would experience your character, your nature, your love, where you speak the truth to us in love, in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you guys.